0: A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times the global average. It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We've got a fascinating show today that'll be a fair bit longer than usual as we dive into the latest information from the IPCC. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back after an extended break, and I am so excited to catch you all up on the great work we've been doing here at South of Two Degrees. Now, after the last interview with Dr. Kimberly Miner of NASA became one of our top episodes around the globe, the South of Two Degrees team decided to try and go out and get some more. However, if I'm being honest, I think Dr. Miner will be hard to beat. By the way, if you haven't listened to both parts of her interview, I highly recommend you go back and do so. Anyway, the team came through and I had the unbelievable honor this last Monday to sit down with a living legend in the conservation space and a personal hero of mine since I was a kid in an exclusive one-on-one interview with none other than Dr. Sylvia Earle. Now, the Dr. Earle interview won't drop until the end of October. However, we'll be releasing some clips as we get closer. As for today, I want to touch on another item of note that happened this week. Monday saw the IPCC, or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, release the first part, and there are three, of what is called AR6, or the Sixth Assessment Report. Now, AR6 has three working groups, as I mentioned, and each publish separate assessments on the following areas. Working Group 1, the physical science, which is just that. They assess the physical science of climate change. Working Group 2, Impacts, Adaptations, and Vulnerability. In other words, they assess the vulnerability of socioeconomic and natural systems to climate change, negative and positive consequences of climate change, and options for adapting to it. Working Group 3, Mitigation of Climate Change, which rightly focuses on climate change mitigation, assessing methods for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. Because the first part of AR6 has been so widely reported on, I'd like to make a quick comment. I've heard more than a few high-profile individuals talk about it and say things like, but the report clearly states we shouldn't throw in the towel. You should know if anyone references solutions or adaptations described in the report, then they either didn't read it or are trying to bridge unconnected things. This report is purely on the physical science. Anything else is an inference. As I mentioned a second ago, Things like adaptation and mitigation methods are dealt with by Working Groups 2 and 3 and their reports don't come out until early next year. As you know, I will always be completely transparent and call this out not to highlight anyone in particular, but rather to say, pay attention because there is a lot of misinformation out there. I want to start by putting into perspective just how detailed AR6 Working Group 1 is. Not only is the full document a whopping 3,949 pages, but it was compiled by 234 experts. They took into consideration nearly 100,000 comments from other scientists on pre-release drafts and ended up with over 14,000 scientific paper citations. In other words, if someone tries to tell you that this is a narrow report that doesn't have broad consensus... You can tell them to bugger off Is that couldn't be further from the truth. Now, before we dive into the report, it's worth repeating part of what we have discussed last year, namely how scientists speak. To many, it can come across as a language other than English and without a solid grasp on it. AR6 is extremely difficult to understand. Scientists use terms such as likely, Unlikely, high confidence, low confidence, medium confidence. Honestly, it can get exhausting to those not in the profession. So why do they do it? Well, they do it because science almost never deals in certainties. Rather, it deals with probabilities based on observations. They then make inferences for the empty space in between those observations using calculation models that can then project into the future, like the commonly used C-M-I-P-6 or Phase 6 of the Coupled Model Intercomparison Project, which produces multi-model climate projections based on alternative scenarios of future emissions and land use changes produced with Integrated Assessment Models or IAMs. Now, you really don't need to know that in all the detail I just rattled off. And while folks like me find its inner workings fascinating, I'll save you from the boredom many, if not all of you, would feel, so I'll leave it simply that much of this report uses the CMIP-6 model to project future conditions. That said, if you want to learn more on integrated assessment models, you can do so over at southof2degrees.org under the citations page. I should point out, however, because these models require assumptions and are built by humans, there is an innate and unavoidable aspect of error. Yes, we have gotten immensely better, but it's not perfect. As a result, scientists use the phrases I mentioned earlier. Yes, it runs counter to the media's narrative and the majority of their audiences desire to have a definitive answer, but that is just the way science works. So we could? Alright, cool, we'll move on. Last thing of note before we dive in is an aspect that scared the... Of me, yet is super easy to miss if you aren't accustomed to the jargon we just went through. What has me nervous was the number of times the phrase virtually certain was used in this report. I can't express how incredibly rare it is to see that phrase as opposed to high confidence, and this is the first time I have seen it used so prolifically. Okay. On to the report and its findings, and I'll caveat my summary by noting because it's nearly 4,000 pages long, I'm going to be boiling down a lot, but I'll do my best to give you the highlights. Of course, if you want to read it on your own, which I encourage, you can find a link over on the website as well. So let's start at the beginning, as it lands a powerful blow with the very first line. Quote, it is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean, and land. End quote. I'll say that again. It is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean, and land. End quote. Not many scientific papers begin with such bold language. That said, we should probably touch on the magic number everyone references and note how close we are. In section A.1.2, it states, quote, each of the last 4 decades has been successively warmer than any decade that preceded it since 1850. Global surface temperatures in the first 2 decades of the 21st century was 0.99 degrees C higher than 1850 to 1900. Global surface temperature was 1.09 degrees C higher in 2011 through 2020 than in 1850 through 1900 with larger increases over land, approximately 1.59 degrees C, than over the ocean, which was about 0.88 degrees C. The estimated increase in global surface temperature since AR5 is principally due to further warming since 2003 to 2012, which was about a plus 0.19 degrees C change. Now, the likely range of total human-caused global surface temperature increase from 1850 to 1900 to 2010 to 2019 is 0.8 degrees C to 1.3 degrees C with a best estimate, a best estimate of 1.07 degrees C. So there's that magic number everyone's looking for as we aim to keep anthropogenic warming to less than 1.5 degrees C. Right now, the best estimate is at 1.07, but we could be as high as 1.3. I'll let that sink in for a second. Now for a curveball. There is a possibility we should have already hit the 2 degrees C mark. And before you say, what the hell, Brian, I'll explain. This is because we have also likely, see, there's that phrase again, caused as much as 0.8 degrees C of cooling through aerosols and it is extremely likely that human-caused ozone depletion is responsible for the cooling scene in the lower stratosphere between 1979 and the mid-1990s. Mind blown yet? If not, at least you're picking up on how nuanced a conversation this is and how many news outlets in a rush to simplify and get an analysis out on a 4,000-page document can miss how deep an impact the science truly demonstrates we have caused. Before we move on, I can just sense some of you in the audience going, Brian, give me a takeaway before you move on. And you deserve one, as I know I can be quick at times when I nerd out, so here is the best I can do on the fly. If you run into someone who wants to debate the fact that we're nearly at 1.1 degrees C of anthropogenic warming, and their argument is say something akin to, well, natural climate change happens, so they don't really know. Just fire back, oh yeah, I forgot to mention, they looked into that and they found it to be right about zero. I mean, negative .01 to positive .01 to be exact, but hey, I appreciate your attempt to play devil's advocate though. Then gently pat him on the shoulder and just turn and walk away. Oh, and listen for the long pause followed by the extremely likely muttered insult to follow, which should only just make you smile. But I digress. So let's look at individual greenhouse gas concentrations. The report states, Since 2011, concentrations have continued to increase in the atmosphere, reaching annual averages of 410 parts per million for carbon dioxide, 1,866 parts per billion for methane, and 332 parts per billion for nitrous oxide in 2019. Now, land and ocean have taken up a near constant proportion, globally about 56% per year, of CO2 emissions from human activities over the past six decades with regional differences, and that's high confidence. I know the parts per million or billion is hard to visualize, and since I don't have a green screen that I can pop up and show you, let me do my best to paint a mental picture for you. Think back, Two million years, that's what. Uh, Right about the time early humans first appeared in China. Well, we know from the geological record that CO2 concentrations are higher now than at any point from then till now. What about methane or nitrous oxide? Well, our record of those comes from ice cores and we know from direct measurement that current levels haven't been this high in at least, at least the last 800,000 years. Now, before we move too far along, I should mention I picked up on a change from AR5 that many outside the scientific community may have missed as it isn't particularly highlighted, but is definitely worth knowing. Namely, that's a change in scenarios and how they're built. Look, I'll do my best to explain. Up until recently... Climate scientists used representative concentration pathways, or RCPs, to describe the different scenarios in emissions reductions, or lack thereof in some cases. If you look through the report, you aren't going to see that term anymore. As in this report, and for sure in others to follow, you'll hear reference to SSPs, or shared socioeconomic pathways. Do these still cover what the world may look like if we act or fail to act in a timely manner? Yes. So what's the difference? Well, the RCPs were more linear by way of thinking, not graphically, in that they looked almost exclusively at the amount of greenhouse gases we put into the atmosphere— As we have become more and more comfortable with system-style thinking, it became readily apparent that such an out-of-context view wouldn't work, so a group of brilliant minds got together and wove in socioeconomic changes that would likely occur under different greenhouse gas and warming levels to more accurately depict where we might be as a society. As a result, we now have five new SSPs, and they are as follows. SSP 1-1.9. Now, this is the most optimistic scenario that describes a world where we cut CO2 emissions to net zero by 2050. It figures in a shift from economic growth to societal well-being as well. I should also note here that this is the only the only scenario that keeps us below 1.5 degrees C as set by the Paris Accord. The second scenario, or SSP1-2.6, and this is the next best scenario and is similar, socioeconomically speaking, to the former and describes a world where we cut CO2 emissions aggressively but not as fast as the first scenario and lands us at net zero After 2050, and we stabilize at about 1.8 degrees C in the year 2100. Now, the third scenario is SSP 2 4.5, and this is the middle of the road pathway where we stabilize close to where we are today but do not reach net zero until after the turn of the century, landing us at about 2.7 degrees C by the year 2100. Further, progress towards a sustainable economy is slow, and income and development grows unevenly. The fourth scenario is SSP 3-7.0, and this is the bad path where emissions continue to rise and end up doubling from today by the year 2100, and it lands us at 3.6 degrees C at that time. Socioeconomically speaking, nations shift towards national security to protect food supplies and become more competitive. Now, the fifth scenario SSP 5-8.5, and while not a scientific term, this is the (laughs) we're-really-all-**** scenario. Forgive the bleeping, but it's true. Here, global economies exploit fossil fuel reserves and grow quickly as a result, and society embraces an energy-rich lifestyle. This has us doubling emissions by 2050 and lands us at a whopping 4.4 degrees C and potentially potentially as high as 5.5 degrees C by the year 2100. Society would break as we know it today, In nearly every region of the planet would look very different. Your takeaway from that? Between right now and 2040, Every single scenario has us breaking 1.5 as a best estimate, and by 2060, all but one has us bouncing up against or blowing past 2.0. Surprised? Well, it's crazy enough that upon discussing this with my own brother Monday evening, he half-jokingly said, well, maybe you should rebrand a south of 3 degrees. I didn't know if I should laugh or cry as he does have a point, even if he is just trying to have some fun with his younger brother. So we've had a lot of detail. How about some quick hits? Let's start with droughts. Well, the report points out it is virtually certain that hot extremes, including heat waves, have become more frequent and more intense across most land regions since the 1950s, while cold extremes, including cold waves, have become less frequent and less severe with high confidence. That human induced climate change is the main driver. Hear that virtually certain again? How about glaciers and Arctic sea ice? Okay, annual average sea ice between 2011 and 2020 was at its lowest point since 1850. Now, Keep in mind, satellites have been continuously monitoring sea ice since 1979, and prior to that, data sets draw from ship observations, compilations by naval oceanographers, analyses by national ice services, etc. Now, soil samples can be used to pull further data, which is what was used to determine that over the latest 10-year period, late summer Arctic sea ice was smaller than at any time in the last 1,000 years. With regard to glaciers, almost all of the world's glaciers have been retreating synchronously since the 1950s, which is unprecedented in the last 2,000 years. Oh, what about rain, monsoons, and hurricanes? Well, this is where we get into the nuances we spoke about earlier. Decreases in global land monsoon precipitation from the 1950s to the 1980s is partly attributed to human-caused northern hemisphere aerosol emissions, but increases since then have resulted from rising greenhouse gas concentrations. Further, over South Asia, East Asia, and West Africa, increases in monsoon precipitation due to warming from greenhouse gas emissions were counteracted by decreases in monsoon precipitation due to cooling from human-caused aerosol emissions over the 20th century and increases in West African monsoon precipitation since the 1980s is partly due to the growing influence of greenhouse gases and reductions in cooling effect of human-caused aerosol emissions over Europe and North America. Now, try arguing those points with some random guy at the local coffee shop. Many folks, especially deniers, just don't want to have conversations in that kind of detail. Oh, I almost forgot, I mentioned hurricanes a second ago, and it's likely, likely, that the global proportion of major, which is Category 3 through 5, tropical cyclone occurrences have increased over the last four decades, and that the latitude where tropical cyclones in the western North Pacific reach their peak intensity has shifted northward. It should be noted that while attribution science is extremely complex, these changes cannot cannot be explained by internal variability alone. The long and short, as the report succinctly states, with every additional increment of global warming, changes in extremes continue to become larger. It goes on to elaborate though by saying, quote, "There will be an increasing occurrence of some extreme events unprecedented." in the observational record, with additional global warming, even at 1.5 degrees C of global warming. Projected percentage changes in frequency are higher for rarer events, and that's high confidence. Look, I know it's pretty heavy, but I'm going to do something I try and avoid at all costs on this show, and for the most part, haven't in the history of the show done. I'm going to voice my quick perspective on this because it's important. And you're welcome to quote me. One of the most sobering aspects of the IPCC report is blunt realization of the damage we've already done. It notes that our impact on ocean temperature, acidification, and deoxygenation is not reversible even in the next 100 to 1,000 years. And that's if we could magically snap our fingers and stop our impact today. You heard me we cannot, with very high confidence, reverse the damage we have already done, nor will our descendants see it reversed, even over the next 1,000 years. And I don't know about you, but that damn near makes me cry. Okay, so what about a bright spot, you ask? I'm happy to give you one, as I would not want to end on that note. It would be way too close to how we ended the show on Polar Bears back in Season 1. Now, the last version of this report, AR5, which was published 8 years ago, is the document that scared the hell out of the governments of the world, pushing them to craft and sign the Paris Accord. If people treat this report, as damning as it is, like they did AR5, then I can only believe that we will see dramatic change and real action over the next few years. Now, before I wrap up, I'm going to do something that I've been asked to do as I now have two live shows over on Fireside, which is Mark Cuban's new social audio platform, where I have the honor of being one of the two creators exclusively focused on anthropogenic climate change. The other person, well... That's my incredible co-host, Kate Bagby, for our Friday evening live audience show called Climate Collab. Anyway, what I have picked up from the studio audience is that everybody loves a fun fact. I guess it's kind of like an adult version of a grab bag at a kid's party. No? Okay, regardless, here it is. Ocean warming accounted for 91% of the heating in the climate system, with land warming, ice loss, and atmospheric warming, accounting for about 5%, 3%, and 1% respectively. Pretty fascinating, huh? While we love to break out all the bits of warming in various locations when we talk about anthropogenic climate change, when it comes to looking at the system of Earth as a whole, it's the ocean that's the main driver. Nearly 20-fold that in the next one. So the next time you find yourself in a conversation about climate change, keep in mind what Dr. Sylvia Earle told me. Follow the carbon. But remember, when it comes to climate, it's all about the ocean. And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I hope this brought some clarity to a complicated report and gave you some takeaways that you might not have gotten unless you're as crazy as I am and are reading through it yourself. If you get the chance, pop over to Fireside and catch Climate Collab with Kate Bagby and I every Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern as we talk to scientists, medical professionals, elected officials, Olympic gold medalists, many, many more, and sometimes just each other with live Q&A from the audience. And aside from checking out the latest information on the website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Fireside, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees.